Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos, and this week we have a very special guest by popular demand, the most famous man on the internet, the the man who uh, took over Dubai, took it by storm, and 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 brought back a bevy of watches and uh, a lot of admirers as well. And that's uh, Michael Manjos. Hey, Mike, how are you? Hey, Josh, thanks for having me back again. Yeah, no problem, man. It's always a pleasure. It's always easy when you're on the uh, when you're on the schedule because I don't have to talk much. I can just listen to the awesome <laughs> stories. So, um, yeah. So today we have a special episode. Um, it is about vintage watches. Which now I think about it, you and I talked about vintage watches maybe a year or two ago. Um, so it was a very different conversation than it, it will be today. Um, it's, I guess today is mostly going to be vintage Rolex. And, uh, and there's nobody better to talk to about that because, uh, you were selling these things when they were new. Yes, I was. Are also vintage. Because <laughs> I am vintage, yes. <laughs> so before we get started, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, uh, start with the customary wrist checks. So you first. Uh, I am as usual wearing my Batman today. Uh, mm. it's getting a little rougher every day, but I love this thing. Um, it's just my daily driver. I did wear my deep seat for a little bit over the holidays, um, but still go back to the Batman all the time. It's just to me, the most perfect Rolex and hopefully I'm going to replace it this year. Uh, really? Yeah, I'm due for, I have not bought myself a watch in a long time and I have two kids that are graduating college this year. So like the graduation present to me is hopefully going to be a new Rolex. So. Oh, congratulations. That's, that's yeah. awesome. So, uh, what year is that, by the way? Uh, I couldn't tell you, but it was like two years after it came out because I wouldn't buy one until I could put one in the case. And for like the first couple of years it came out, uh, it was hard to come by. And I had the original black GMT. And when the Batman came out, I changed, traded it up. Hmm. Well, I think it came out in 2008, right? So yeah, I mean it's probably a 2010, but so it's it's almost vintage, halfway there. Halfway there. There you go. <laughs> so uh, well, today I am not wearing a vintage watch. I'm wearing a very new watch. Um, it's a watch that was made specifically for me uh, by a guy that I talked to uh, specifically when before it was made, um, and it's a, a Garrick watch from Garrick England. Uh, David Brailsford is the uh, the CEO and the owner of that company, and it makes amazing watches. This one's the Norfolk, um, and it happens to be the very last one off the line and the very last one to ever be made. It's number forty, and he told me it's the it's the last and final model that he made, just because uh, at the price point in which it was, which is I think I ended up paying about forty two hundred dollars for this watch. Um, he was losing money. So, uh, and they, they wanted to focus on their new in-house movement, the S5. Um, I love this watch. I've been, I got it, uh, I guess about a week before Christmas. I ordered it in July and, um, it's, it's amazing. Um, you haven't seen it yet in person. I have not seen it in person. I saw some pictures and it looks good. Yeah. I think you'll like it. You're, you like blue dials. I don't really care too much for blue dials. I like just things that I like though. And, uh, this is what I call, he calls it Norfolk blue. For North, Norfolk, England, um, this is, in my opinion, uh, a Florida sky blue, um, and, <laughs> and I love it. So uh, when you you'll be in town next week for uh, for some watch shows, and I'll let you check it out. I think you'll enjoy this watch. I think Miami Beach Antique Show will be lots of vintage things to look at there. Oh yeah, there we go. So we can trash vintage here, and then we can go buy as many as we can. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully, tank the market for a week, um, but. But yeah, that's what I have on the wrist here, guys. If you uh, if you haven't seen this watch, go to uh, Garrick G A R R I C K. Go to their Instagram, um, and if you send them a message, the CEO David Brailsford is the one who replies. Um, it's amazing. And if you order a watch from them, he uh, David will contact you to have an in depth conversation about what you want your watch to be or what what you want uh, your watch to look like because he does bespoke. He has certain models, and then you can change some of the colors and whatnot. So not to make a, uh, a commercial for him because he's not paying me. I mean, I paid for the watch, but I I'm obsessed with it. It's, it's now become basically my favorite watch. Um, but, uh, I think, I think he deserves a, a lot more, uh, accolades than he's, than he's been getting. People need to know about this brand. So, all right, there you go. There's my ad for, for, uh, Garrick England. And, uh, so let's go ahead and get started, man, Joe. So, um, 
what brought about this topic was I was watching an interview uh, with Tim Masso and a gentleman named Claude, I think you pronounce it Safir. That's how you say his last name, right? Um, and it, it was an amazing interview. I, I watched it probably about 10 times. Uh, I, I love – so the thing I like the most about the watch industry besides the watches themselves is the people you meet and the, and the conversations you have. And it, the history that this man put th- forth in like a 35-minute interview was just tremendous, like the way he got into it and everything. But he said something that really resonated with me um, in terms of um, how collecting goes because he's been a, a serious collector for his entire life. He's an elderly man. I think he's in the 70s or so. So uh, he mentioned that um, he doesn't be- – he believes that vintage collecting is essentially dead because people, young people, I guess is is what he called them, but I, almost everyone's young, <laughs> younger than he is. Um, <laughs> but young people don't trust vintage watches um, and uh, especially at these price points. And, and it resonated with me because I – honestly, I feel the same way, right? So I do – I have a rather large collection. I think I'm around 30 watches right now. Um, and I do have some vintage pieces, but they're mostly like vintage Hoyers, vintage Omega. I had a vintage Tudor last year. So, um, you know, certainly real vintage watches, you know, from the 60s, 70s, and I guess 80s as well. Um, but, uh, you know, would I spend, you know, twenty five, $45,000 on a vintage Rolex right now? I really wouldn't. And, and the reason why is not because I don't see the value in it. It's because I don't know, number one. It's hard to tell what's what, right? And number two, there's so much um, incentive for somebody to mess with that watch right now because the values are so high that like, how do I truly know that this watch is just a natural patina or this watch has, hasn't been screwed with or Frankenstein or whatnot, right? So there's, there's too much uncertainty for me, even if I was going to buy it from a guy like you, to be honest with me, because you know, you know, vintage very well, but I mean, it, when it comes down to it in a lot of ways, um, you know, you can't really guarantee, not even Rolex can guarantee that something is totally original um, at this point, especially going back to those like the 50s and 60s where the build quality was comparatively today was extremely poor, right? Yeah, you had a couple issues. One is certainly the build quality is is an issue, but more often than not, a lot of the manufacturers, if you think back and even to Rolex to some extent, were well, what I call assemblers. So, like, if you go and buy a paddock chronograph from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, paddock didn't make that movement. Paddock bought the movement from Lamania, would do some or, you know, whatever the company was making them, they would do some of their own modifications. They would buy the dial from the dial manufacturer. They would buy the hands from the hands manufacturer and they would assemble the watches in house. And that's what manufacturing was. Yes, they made their own movements on classics, but a lot of the complications were done by subcontractors. So what this meant was not only was that movement in a Patek Philippe, that same movement was in a Vacheron or an Audemars or a number of other brands. And there were parts and there were whole movements that were available in the market. If you wanted to get a part for a watch, you didn't have to go to the manufacturers. You went to a parts supplier and every big city, you know, we had, had parts suppliers and they would get parts from the movement manufacturers and otherwise. So you could basically build yourself uh, a watch in a lot of cases, or you could replicate the watch or you could replace parts very easily. And it was done commonly. It wasn't necessarily nefarious. It was just how watches were fixed. Right. Now you fast forward 20 years and suddenly these watches that were three and four thousand dollars became, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. And suddenly there's a big interest in one making these watches mint condition. So that was for, you know, 15 or 20 years. Everybody wanted a vintage watch that looked immaculate like new and was restored like new. Um, and then when Phillips came along, maybe 15, 20 years ago, And they started talking about patina and faded dials. And suddenly all those things that, you know, in the 70s and 80s, we were throwing away and replacing the parts were now coveted and much more highly valued than the true restored pieces. So you became in this situation where people were putting watches together and the auction houses were famous for doing it. If you think back, 
some of the most famous watchmakers in the world started their careers as restorers for the auction houses. That's right. Is it, was it Frank Mueller? Who, Frank who, Mueller did that. Uh, there's a number of them. The list goes on that a lot of the guys would get their starts working for, um, you know, doing repair work for auction houses. Jorn? Jorn started that way, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. And they would actually repair and restore these watches for auction because a lot of them would sit in drawers. They were not taken care of because they were worn and used back in the day. Um, right. So your job was to restore them. There wasn't a computer. You could go bring a diagram. You kind of had to figure it out. So if you were a really gifted watchmaker, you could make a nice living supporting the auction houses. Um, but that sometimes meant making parts and replacing things inside the watches. And then it got, you know, bad when things really started taking off in the vintage world um, because then you started getting things like treating dials and, you know, refinished, refinishing dials was a, was an art form for a lot of years and people would, you know, try to restore the dials like new. And then they figured out that they could start treating them to make them look old and make them look historic and make them look really vintage by treating them. And you did get a lot of that treatment, um, you know, in the secondary market, there's some famous dealers who have been sued, you know, because, <laughs> you know, we've all read the stories and you know, <laughs> they were all out there um, because they would do some of these things that, you know, knew knowing it wasn't quite right. Now, granted, dial changes were a common thing back in the day um, and brands would change dials and move things around. But, you know, people would buy a, a watch with a rough case and a beautiful dial and take the dial out. And put it in a different watch. Now, I think Claude called that a, a, a we we I guess we call it Frankenstein. Claude called it a puzzle watch, which I kind of like that term. It is, and that's exactly it was just put together. And like you'll see, uh, there's a couple of guys on the internet these days who go through the old auction catalogs and it'll be you know pull out a paddock that sold 20 years ago with a silver dial and it suddenly suddenly shows up at auction with the same serial number with a black Tiffany dial, right. Uh, <laughs> Our friend, there's a guy on Jose Perez on, uh, he's on Instagram and he's got his own website, but he's famous for, for doing the research and calling these out, like with Panerai specifically, but also Rolex, um, the, the, the fuckery with Panerai vintage watches is, is astounding based on like how few there exist. And it seems like every single one that comes up, I see him write a, a detailed article of why exactly the thing has been screwed with or why it's fake. And it's, it's scary. Like, so it, so back to the original point, like it, it makes someone like me, right, shy away from that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, we know that we know that this stuff has happened in the past, but then, you know, we see, for example, was a 2017, a, a, a vintage um, uh, um, Daytona sell for what, $20 million because, well, number one, it's a vintage Daytona, but also because someone wore it. Yes. Uh, Paul Newman. So, but you know, how, how does somebody reconcile this, right? So I'm not, obviously I'm not spending $20 million. I don't know if you know anyone who's spending $20 million on a vintage anything, but if I'm spending 50 or $60,000 on this, so like, how do I reconcile this? And how do I feel comfortable with this purchase that number one, I'm buying what I'm buying. Cause like it, you know, a modern sub, you know, somebody texts me, Hey, what are you paying for a, you know, a, a one, two, six, six, one, three blue, uh, you know, 2021, I know what this watch is. I don't even need to see a picture of it. I can tell sure. you how much I'll pay for it. Um, but if you tell me, you know, a 5510 with the certain dial and the foot. Yeah, and rail dial. And I got rail dial. Or, I mean, well, so for example, I had someone offer me a, a Zenith Daytona and, you know, we offered X price and we have the same reference on our website for double that. And I had to reach out to uh, someone on your team and say, hey, so help me explain this to my customer that, you know, we're offering X for it, but we have one that's offering double. And he's like, well, based on the patina, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's, I mean, that's tough, but I mean, that's what vintage is, right? So based on the certain look of, or the certain fade of the, of the indices in the hands, this watch is worth double, but how do we really know it's worth double? Like there's so much um, uh, speculation, I think, or I feel like. Yeah. I mean, it definitely gets harder to value. It gets harder. Um, and the other problem that I've always had is, you know, the people who tend to specialize in those kind of pieces, um, 
it was always my experience that, you know, when you were going to buy something from them, it was the rarest, coolest thing ever in mm -hmm. history and was twice what you thought it should be. And every time you presented something to them, you know, there was 14 reasons why it was worth nothing. Right. But they still wanted to buy it. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, there's stories. There's always the stories. So there was always the part, and that kind of turns people off sometimes. So, you know, there was definitely, there are some great vintage dealers that have been around forever, and that's like any other business. Uh, but there was a lot of people who got into it who were not good at it and not terribly honorable about it. So that was also the part that makes it hard. And, you know, part of the thing was I know like a lot of collectors would be like, oh, you know, it's fine. I bought it from Christie's. Well, I hate to <laughs> to you, but the kid who's at working at Christie's has been in this business three years and is not really an expert. It's not like 30 years ago when the auction houses truly were the, were the place where the expertise lived. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, there became such value in these pre-owned watches and so much money to be made in the vintage that the guys who were really good at it were traders and they were buying and selling the watches. They were buying stuff from auction. Um, mm -hmm. They weren't being an expert, you know, selling watches at auction and making a salary. Um, so it was a very different business. So you don't it's get the level there. of expertise that you think you would at the auction house. Yeah. I mean, well, it even gets more confusing when I have, so for example, I have customers um, who have, you know, large vintage um, collections and they'll tell me, oh, I have a guy who he's a foremost expert in this. It's a guy I've never heard of. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean that he's not legitimate, but it's a guy I've never heard of, which gives me pause because, you know, we're heavily in this, we're heavily in the watch industry. And, and at this point, if you tell me that there's somebody who's an expert in something watches, I would have least heard of the guy, right? you know, being a decade in, or you would certainly being, you know, well more than that. Um, uh, but, you know, and then, and oh, so let me run this by my guy. I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, that scares me a little bit. You know, when somebody has an unknown person who, who he, who they trust specifically, and that guy is going to tell you yes or no on these things. It's like, you know, what, where, where's that, where's his expertise coming from? And, and in my opinion, the guys who are buying and selling these only have a certain a, a certain level of certainty about these things, right? And if I mean, I might be extra skeptical, but I, I even the best guys like you and I know guys, even guys locally here who I who are absolutely insanely knowledgeable about these things, and they still get it wrong. So absolutely, like, I mean, again, well, part of the thing you got to remember is a lot of these things truly were rare, which means like you know you go back to even you know, 1518s or 2499s, you know, they made a few hundred of them. So even if you're an expert and they made a few hundred of them over 20 years. So like how oh, many have, has any one of these experts seen? Maybe it doesn't ever, you know, maybe I've played with, I mean, I've probably traded five or six 2499s, but that's not a lot over 35 years. Uh, <laughs> And then you add to that that they're all that they're handmade. Yeah, there was really no. They're all a little different. They did right. do custom things. They did a lot of one ofs. So you know, expecting to be an expert without having access to the archives or direct information is hard. And yeah. you know, guys, they're they're very tight. And the manufacturers, honestly, for a lot of years, didn't share a lot of information because they didn't want to share a lot of information. Uh, somebody didn't didn't keep records. I know Panerai kept terrible records of their early watches, and I've spoken to people who within the organization who I'm like, hey, you know, I've just got offered this watch. Do you guys have any information internally about this? And he's like, uh, so he, like the, uh, my friend who worked for Panerai doesn't work for them anymore, but he was in their office. He's like, well, my boss told me to tell you that we don't give out that information, but realistically, it's because we don't have it, right? No, and a lot of the companies did keep good records, and especially the big brands, um, but they didn't want to share it because uh, I think in a lot of times they felt like, uh, you know, it didn't create the right image. You know, they didn't want to tell the world how many they made of these things uh, mm -hmm. because I think perception was they were much more successful than they actually were on some of these models. They didn't want to admit some of these models were complete failures, and, mm -hmm. you know, bombs. Um 
So they didn't really share that information. So it's hard to really know if it's true. Now, you know, Paddock kind of started leading the way doing archives, which was helpful right. because that would give some credibility that, yes, you know, it was made on a certain date, you know, it was sold on a certain date. And they could verify all that because they do have the records. So on that standpoint, there was nice credibility. Uh, and you could tell something was born a certain way. Movement wasn't changed because the numbers all matched. Um, and that did give support to the paddock market. And I think one of the reasons why really the the first big move in vintage watches was with paddock. You know, they did the museum and right. they showed rarity, but they would also support it. And then the other thing they did, which was very different than most manufacturers, was from day one, they said, if we've made a watch going back from 1839, we'll fix it. That's amazing. Yeah, it is incredible. And nobody else would do it. Now, the only issue became is as this evolved um, and I've been to the restoration department there um, they literally have to remake a lot of parts and their philosophy on restoration um, was to make it new. You mm -hmm. would send in a, you know, a fifties chronograph that was rusted out and it would come back and look like it rolled off the line yesterday, which is cool on one end and not cool on another end. And the market really decided that, you know, restoration or vintage really wanted to be original. And the value of their restored pieces was much softer than an unrestored piece. So people kind of right. got away from, you know, why don't I want to go spend 15 grand on a restoration that takes a year where they replace the parts. And then suddenly um, I have a watch that's worth less. Right. And that, you know, that's, <clears throat> that is a huge issue. And, and that kind of leads into the next thing, right? So one thing that we're seeing, which is, good is that more brands are more open to to working with their vintage watches right so uh recently rolex is now open that up because back not that long ago um if you brought a rolex that was more than 25 years to them to ask them to fix it they would just say no thank you we're not going to do this we're not going to touch this um and that's changed now right no i think it's it's totally changed for sure and what's happened is, um, you know, again, for years, if you sent in a, a vintage piece to Rolex, they would say, you know, thank you for thinking of us. We're sending your watch back. We don't carry these parts anymore. Um, and specialists kind of grew up to restore them and you had other people doing it. Um, but about two years ago and very quietly, Rolex opened uh, their vintage department in Geneva. Um, and I only heard about it through word of mouth because Rolex did not really announce it in any way. And if you now send a watch uh, into their facility in New York or, you know, Lidditz, uh, they will say, yeah, you know, this would need to go forward into Geneva and it's a whole process. But they do literally restore and restore in a way that's super respectful. Um, I've actually put two pieces through the process so far because I wanted to kind of see how it worked. Um, mm -hmm. So I took a 6239 Big Red and I sent it in and it was gone for 14 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it cost a bloody fortune. Mm -hmm. But um, I got it back and not only did it come in this really cool wooden presentation box that said, you know, Rolex restoration and not only did it have uh, paperwork that came with the watch? It came with like a book. And uh, like, I don't know if you've ever made one of the, like, the Apple books. Uh, no. And they literally, it's a book that's the history of your watch. And it talks about the model and it talks what? about the timeline and when they made it. And it shows by serial number uh, where your watch slots in. Oh, wow. And then they had a picture of the watch as it came in in original condition. Uh, and a picture of the movement, and then a, another page with a list of all the parts that they needed to change, whether it was one hand or no hands or, you know, um, a wheel here or there, and every part that they changed, and then a completed picture of the watch, completed picture of the movement, just a whole story of the process, and the, I mean, it was really well done. Wow. And how was the communication? Like, or did they ask Almost you, hey, 
Oh, so they, they make the determination on what they're going to change. Correct. Uh, wow. I mean, again, I think they would, you know, send things back. Uh, I mean, I haven't talked to a lot of other people who've had the experience, but, you know, I knew enough to just kind of leave them to do their thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And they did, and they did it in a way that I thought was spectacular. So, you know, I have another more important piece over there that's been there probably six months. I haven't heard boo yet. Um, mm. But so, so you don't have a say as to what they're going to change in terms of the dial, hands, um, you know, refinishing a dial. Or anything they, don't, like I mean, they don't really refinish the dials. Uh, the dial okay. was all left original and had some damage. But um, basically, from what I understand, as long as it's not something that they feel is going to inhibit the running of the watch. So, you right. know, if your dial is flaking and pieces are falling off, that's not going to really work because shows are going to go into the movement. It's going to cause all kinds of issues. Um, so they don't do the won't leave things in that condition, but they really did leave it uh, very much original, which I thought was spectacular. Gotcha. And and do they send back the parts that they remove or? Uh, no, they do not. Okay. They just send pictures of everything they took out and put back in uh, replacements. Um, but it also lets you know that it was born that way with the dial. It came with, um, you know, the serial numbers were all original. So, everything to their standards was intact. So, you know, the second piece I've sent in is, is a Newman uh, Daytona. And, oh, wow. You know, the big concern with that. Is it the Newman Daytona? Were you the guy who bought it? I'm sorry? Was it the no- Newman Daytona? No, it was Did you spend 20? Newman. <laughs> it was a Newman Daytona. Uh, okay. But it was, you know, a really nice transitional one. It was a 6240. It had a dial from an earlier time um, but based on the research I've done the million seven serial um, it's correct um, and I've had people tell me it was not correct but I really truly believe it is so I figured the only way to know is send it to the to the crown and let them decide um, Interesting. that it was born that way and if it comes back uh, what I'm not sure about honestly is how the market's going to look at it but I believe right. Because of the fear of everything that's been put together, I think having that credibility from the manufacturer will be great. I mean, for a lot of years back in the 80s and 90s, what we used to do um, was we used to send them all into Rolex for estimates and then just decline the estimate because mm-hmm. they would not give an estimate on something that wasn't all original. Right. Send it back sense. and say this dial was changed. We won't work on this. So that was the shtick for a number of years that we used to always do. And then they kind of caught on to what we were all doing and stopped giving us to it. <laughs> ah, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So, yeah, well, I mean, so maybe that sets a new standard, maybe just for Rolexes, but, you know, maybe nobody buys a vintage Rolex without it being going out to the, to the factory at that point. Well, it was interesting. You know, like that- you know I had a great experience last fall. Uh, being uh, able to go down to Porsche headquarters in Atlanta. And, you know, it was a great trip. But I think the coolest thing in it was they had a restoration department in headquarters. And they'll only accept certain cars that meet a standard and, you know, are primarily all original. Um, But then they'll do a whole top to bottom restoration. And it's incredible what they do, and it's really cool. I think Rolex is kind of either looking at that or Porsche looked at something, but they realize that there's a business to be had and mm-hmm. a helping of the brand to be able to do that kind of vintage restoration work. Makes sense. Well, as an aside, it's funny you brought up Porsche because for the last few years, um, every year I kind of pick another topic to educate myself on. So whatever, you know, I pick literally some esoteric thing or something I have interest in or whatever. And so now I'm, I'm educating myself on vintage cars, but I'm starting with Porsches and Porsche 911s. So I'm learning about how they came about, you know, the, the first, the 911 was actually supposed to be called the 901, but they couldn't because Peugeot had a, some sort of, uh, a monopoly over, over, um, using three digit, uh, uh, numbers with a zero in the middle for their, uh, 
uh, for their car names, all this stuff. But it's interesting you brought that up because that's that's something I'm in the middle of right now. So, um, and and again, that that's also part of what you know what piqued my interest. Vintage cars and vintage watches kind of go hand in hand, but the vintage car market is much more established. Well, realistically, just like the car resale market, um, and there's a lot of mirrors here um, between vintage cars and vintage watches, except that um, you know vintage watches are seemingly more accessible you don't need to title them and, and you can overnight a vintage watch whereas a vintage car you might take you months in order to get it across the sea or whatever so there's there is a lot I, I know vintage car guys who are into vintage vintage watches as well um so i think it's fantastic that rolex is doing this and i think that there's nobody nobody better to do it because we actually saw the other side of this right so omega will absolutely um uh, they will restore vintage watches and they have for a long time right um and they even had they even have communication, right? So our former head of watchmaking, who left, I think he works for Richemont now, um, uh, Michael Michaels. Um, when he was there, we brought in a uh, an Omega Ultraman, right, <clears throat> a, a vintage piece, uh, amazing watch, and it needed service, but otherwise it was totally original. We bought it from the original owner, um, who. Uh, who you know decided he'd rather sell the watch than keep it, and and we decided, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to send it to Omega. Um, they have great communication in terms of that these things. We're going to have them um, uh, service the movement, give us a certificate. This should solidify that hey, this thing's totally original. Plus, it works, and then we'll post it for sale. Hopefully, make a lot of money. Right, that was our goal. Um, it didn't go out. It didn't go that way, did it? No, it did not. <laughs> no. So. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, and that's the other side of things, right? So, you know, hopefully Rolex, I mean, they tend to do everything, you know, tip top, right? They're not half-assing anything. But, um, you know, even companies who have these, you know, these protocols for for um, servicing vintage watches, things can go wrong. I mean, I, with that watch, I, I believe, I think I saw the email that Mike Michaels had with their, whoever their, uh, their guy was there at their, um, Location very open to hey listen we're not changing anything no dials no hands nothing like that we simply want a, a service of the movement and you know we want the certificate that goes with it and he said yes not a problem the watch looks great dial looks fine we won't have an issue so the watch comes back with a new dial and new hands I believe right yeah exactly what um, they just yeah yeah it, it turned into be a nightmare so it it it, it cut the value f- by seventy five percent I believe. Um, and, 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 and what it did was, which hurts me because like, I get sentimental about these things. It's like, all right, so there's one last, one less truly original piece, uh, you know, Ultraman out there, right? Which sucks. Like that's, that's the- Yeah, no, it definitely feels. does damage to the market. There's no question about it. And I think, you know, the, one of the reasons that people have had issues again, because there's such inconsistency with the brands, because, you know, the brands are big corporations now. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have necessarily people who are lifers at conglomerates. You know what I mean? They, you know, mm-hmm. they don't perform for two or three years. They replace them and they get in professional managers who don't really understand either the business or the, the passion that went behind these vintage pieces. So you end up getting decisions that are made for financial reasons or branding or marketing, not necessarily what's best in the watch world or what's best for watches or watch guys. Yeah, you're right about that. I didn't even think about it that way, but yeah, that's, that's, that is a big issue. No, so, I mean, one of my favorite um, stories ever was when, you know, when Jorn, before he was Jorn, you know, they were making movements and, you know, mm-hmm. one of his famous quotes when someone asked him, um, you know, why he went out on his own for his own brand. And he said, I got sick of making pearls for swanning. Uh, because he would, but he was making, you know, these amazing movements, presenting them to, in a lot of cases, Cartier and Piaget and these big brands who didn't really understand, one, their history, or two, what he was even showing them. And they're like, oh, that won't sell today. You know, we need a, you know, big steel chronograph. We don't need a, you know, a floating jump hour. You know, who would care about that? Um, or I don't even understand what resonance means. You know what I mean? Like they didn't understand what his vision was because they really weren't watch people. They were suits 
And you get a lot of yeah. that with the groups today is, you know, they're in board meetings and, you know, you can see from some of the watches that get designed today is that, you know, we're just trying to reach a mass market. We're not really making watches. And that's why the independents have taken off. Um, but I think you will see small brands and I'm hoping like a brand like Debethune that we're obviously involved with now and love um, is, you mm-hmm. know, Denny is going to know every watch he ever made. Right. And, you know, I'm sure that, Part of it will give credibility to that. And that's why I think Jorn has done very well because, you know, they document every watch they ever made. They'll tell you how many they made in every year. They can date mm-hmm. your watch exactly. And, you know, not everyone is perfect, but they know what was made and why it was made back in the day. And I think. Well, he limits his production based on how many watches he can inspect, I think, or it was what they told me when I was there. That's absolutely the truth because he's involved in every single watch. So I think what you're going to see is I think you'll see vintage uh, micro brands, these smaller brands, um, really start taking off as well because everybody has more faith in that. You know, everybody knows that Philippe Defour has made 205 or 210 watches. He tells everybody. Yeah. He's made everyone himself. Everybody knows it. So there's no worry that one of his early watches is going to be an issue because he could tell you about it. And it's all documented. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see strength in those kind of brands. And if you look at the auction results over the past few years, more and more of these smaller independent rare pieces have done exceptionally well. Um and they'll also come sometimes with like a service from the factory and a note from the factory and all that kind of personal touch, which I think adds credibility and comfort for people. I don't even want you to call it a factory, by the way. Like Denny has a workshop. Yes, he does. It work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jorn too. You know, I, we've been there. Many a time. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's tremendous. So in that, and it's funny because I talk to people. So, so on the other hand, you know, so that's, I guess, the next topic is, you know, so right now there's vintage watches from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe even to the 80s, right? Um, and then there's something called that is now people are calling it, you've called it this way, like neo-vintage, right. right? So watches that are like 10 to 20 or 10 to 25 years old, right? So, uh, you know, the, really it's, the, you know, right around that 2000 mark. So like the, ni- yeah, the 90s, 90s kind of, yeah, exactly. Or even even early nineties, yeah. we'll say put it that way. So I guess thirty years old, right? So I guess which is the definition of vintage. I guess I was told it's twenty five years, but um, you know, there's a big difference between a nineteen ninety five Submariner and a nineteen fifty five Submariner, right? Like one of them is basically deteriorating, you know, uh, uh, at a rapid pace day by day, and one of them you can still wear, legitimately diving, right? right? Um, so. You know, what do you think the future is? I, ha- I have opinions on this, but I definitely want to hear from you what you think the future is of things that are now called neo-vintage. And then we'll talk about like current day watches and how what vintage is going to be like in 30 years from now. But, you know, what where do you see, you know, a, a 1995 Submariner that has a much better build quality? It's nothing compared to what is made in 2022, but it's basically it's space age compared to something that was made in, in 1955. Yeah, very um, true. And it's an interesting concept because, um, yeah, the vintage stuff that was made in the fifties and sixties does deteriorate. A 90 sub is still a daily driver today. You could certainly wear that. The new ones, you don't think they're ever going to change in 20 years. So like, is anyone right. going to care that you have a 20 year old sub when it looks exactly the same as a 10 year old sub or a 15 year old sub? Or one year, or one year old, something at that point. So yeah, I think you will lose. I think there's a couple things we're going to lose. I don't think you know the the modern watches of today are going to kind of age the same way or be valued the same way because uh, I just think to your point, they're they're a little more mass produced. They're not really as boutiquey, uh, except for the tiny independents, which I think is why they're doing so well. Um, mm-hmm. And the you know, Rolex was a small company in the 70s and 80s, you forget. Um, it really. How many watches did they make back then, like roughly? I don't know exactly. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly not million like they are today. 
Um, you know, right. they were they were kind of a, a tool watch and they were not as big. You know, Omega was much bigger than Rolex, you know, back in the 70s. It was much right. more well-known. It was much more famous. It was a much broader company. Rolex was kind of this niche, big, you know, tool watch that, you know, guys in PXs bought. Um, and that's what was cool about it. But, you know, getting back to the vintage part of it, I think it's going to be very diff- different going forward. I think you will start seeing more and more brands kind of go the Rolex route of doing a certified vintage department, having the ability of the factory to verify what they made or did and that things are original. I think it's important. I think people are realizing that the vintage part of their business is important, even if it's not a big profit center. Um, You know, it's a history and it creates uh, an important part. I mean, we do a lot of chats um, with brands right now because they're trying to figure out how they handle the secondary market in general. Um, and specifically, you know, they love to see their watches do well in the secondary market and realize that they do need to support that in some way. And sometimes that way is just information and, you know, right. sharing knowledge and sharing expertise and telling people why things are right or wrong. I think helps the market tremendously. And I think people will get more and more that way. You know, the world is getting more transparent. You know, the world gets smaller and more transparent. Yeah. So people know more. Um, and you have people who say, they think they know they more. Think they, know more. So they have internet access. There's also people <laughs> who do our questioning, you know, if everything's right or wrong. So there's, there's a little more mm-hmm. acceptance. So I don't think vintage is going to die completely. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly in the last five years, if you look at the numbers, it's kind of scary. It's like, you know, vintage Daytonas haven't moved much in the last five or 10 years. And like, I even look at like, I was, we were doing a, a thing on market wrap today because uh, we just finished our hundredth episode and looking at numbers two years ago, you know, a Nautilus had tripled, uh, you know, a Longa uh, Lumen had tripled. Um, and then you mm-hmm. took a 5070 and, you know, that was selling for 62,000 two years ago. It's selling for 68,000 today. Hasn't moved a bit. And it's one of the most iconic, amazing Patek Philippe two registers chronographs. But you've been saying this for years, by the way, that this years. is a collective like, watch and nobody's nobody looking listens yet. to me. Not a word I say, yeah. apparently. Uh, well, you, because it, you can't, you can't wear it to you the, can't beach. wear it to the beach. problem, but like at some point <laughs> someone's going to figure out that I shouldn't be wearing my paddock to the beach anyways. Yeah. But, uh, so, so I mean, okay, well, my opinion on this is two things, right? So <clears throat> I hear a lot of people talking about vintage and also these small independents about how these prices are crazy and they're not sustainable, but, and, and my first reaction is that's true. This is crazy. How could, you know, how could these prices be sustainable? But then I talked to, I have a good friend of mine who's an art dealer. And when I tell him, you know, something sold at auction at 1.2 and it's just madness, how could it be? And he's like, what do you mean? Like paintings, I have paintings that sell for hundreds of millions of dollars and it's routine. Like, so in terms of where the ceiling is for, we'll mix in independence with the vintage, so like early journeys, right? So like a 1990, like a, a subscription uh, Turbione, that is what, I guess, two, how, how much, how many millions is that right now? Two and a half million, three million. So I think it's a two and a half million right. dollar watch and it's bonkers, it's madness. How could it be this high? He he tells me, he's like, listen, man, I have, uh, if, if it goes the way of art, which he sees that a lot of the same people are now looking at, at like certain watches and finding and following the watchmakers and, and seeing the true rarity of these things. Um, He's like, yeah, no, these, these things could be worth much, much more. Like the ceiling in his mind is where the art market is, which is like, this is pennies. Like these are the, 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 the prices in which in our world are uh, some of these vintage watches and also early pieces from these micro brands are selling are like the rounding errors for what the- No question uh, about it. And we've seen this now because, you know, we did see a 15, 18 18- um, you know, sell for $10 million a couple months ago. I mean, definitely a record. Yeah. We've seen the Philippe de Fours, you know, sell for a million and a half, where that was a two or $300,000 watch just three or four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So we're seeing more and more of these seven-figure trades 
go on on a regular basis. And now, I mean, even think back five years ago, you know, a two hundred thousand dollar watch was a big watch. Was you know, that was a crazy watch. Now it's like uh, I think we've sold seven or eight this month already. <laughs> oh yeah, it's well, like I mean, it's I sold January. It's like you know, listen. When I started in this industry, if I had a two hundred thousand dollars sales month, I was high fiving people. I couldn't believe it, and I would have that that would have been probably twenty five watches, right? I sold a hundred thousand dollars watches right. today. And it, and it was like, I felt it was great. I'm glad to make the customer and, and, and it was awesome to make the sale, but it's. But no one was okay. calling you up saying, oh my God. <laughs> this way, right? You keep track of these things. Do you even know what watch I'm no. talking about? Exactly. So, I mean, you know, cause we sold, you know, we're, we sold multiple of these and it's not just watch box. Like we have a, we do make a lot of sales, obviously where I guess at this point, the largest in the, in the industry, but I have friends who work for smaller watch companies in the sense of their, their inventory, but they're making these types of sales as well. So, you know, I think, you know, and, and I hate to beat a uh, dead horse because we've talked about this and I always talk about it, but, you know, the market, is it sustainable? There's certainly pieces that are overpriced and the, the mark and each of these pieces are going to be finding their level, but there's more collectors and there's also a new level of collector. And again, I had this conversation with my friend who's an art dealer and he said 10 years ago, you know, he was buying some watches, but none of his customers cared about watches really, right? And now they're all interested in watches. And he's and so he's been sending me people um, saying, hey, can you help with this guy with this watch? Can you help? Like he's been a, 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 a funnel of business for me, but these are people that he's been dealing with for 25 years who are now stepping in. So which makes it tough because guys who've been collecting for that same amount of 25 years are not used to competing with Guys who have mega yachts. Sure. No, <laughs> we've seen calling. some big money come in. We've seen some billionaires come in, you know, and just go on runs that you're just like, oh my god, you know. Yeah, it's totally. I mean, we have guys who've been in the in the industry for two years and are, are doing million dollars months, you know, not because they're the greatest salespeople on the planet. It's because they found the guy who's going on the run and and you know they they want to they want to up their that you know they have a. a a $200 million art collection and they want to have a $10 million watch collection. You know? Yeah, no, we definitely see more and more of that. There's definitely more money has piled into this industry. Um, you know, I had a good, I had a lunch last weekend with a good client of mine who's a, a decent collector of and vintage for sure. Um, and he said, he goes, you know, he buys cars, he buys wine, he buys watches. He said in the last five years, the watches have crushed everything else. Mm-hmm. as far as oh, performance wise yeah. goes and yeah. well just because it was they were behind you know like wine collectors have been around for a long time is a huge um a huge market of wine collectors same with art same with cars and you know we when i started in the industry i couldn't be, i remember talking to my friends and saying like i can't believe that there's a market people are spending you know eight ten thousand dollars on watches this is crazy but if if you had told me that people were spending millions of dollars on paintings i knew that that was just common knowledge or or stupid amount of money on cars. Yeah, that was, again, part of the the just common knowledge that people spend a lot of money on cars. So now watches, have I feel like, have caught up. And it just happened so quickly. It's scary. Um, but we've gotten off topic. Let's get back to vintage. Um, so uh, my, my view of things is that a 2021 sub will never truly be called vintage. This is my my kind of my theory. I'm still developing it. So I'm sure if somebody's listening to this saying, you're an idiot, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, please reach out to me and give me your thoughts because I'm still developing my thoughts on this. But I think that, you know, part of vintage is that it is something that shows its age, right? And a, a Submariner from 2021 will never show its age, in my opinion. It just won't. Um, you know, it, it, maybe if it's over refinished and whatnot, but now you're talking about damage. Um, that's not patina due to the sun or indices fading or a dial changing color or, um, or, or anything like right. that, right? Like you're going to be able to, if it's been treated right, the watch is going to look no different than a 2050 sub at the time. So I think that what will ha- end up happening is watches made pre 2000, I think will end up being roughly the cutoff. Um, well, because we'll put it this way in eight years from now. The first because uh, the first ceramic Rolex was a GMT in 2006, right? Yeah, am I, I right about exactly that? Right or am I... Now, which is kind of scary. Okay, 
Okay. So in eight years from now, okay, which is going to be a blink of an eye. I mean, the last three years has been happened in about four months, right? So (laughs) um, in eight years from now, 2030, that watch will roughly be 25 years old. um, And that'll be like, quote unquote, vintage. But I mean, will it? Is it really vintage? Yeah, it won't be at all. I mean, mean, I'm looking at my, you know, my GMT that's probably a dozen years old now. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's the same same as the new one. I mean, look. Nobody right. refinished that. You refinished that. Yeah, you refin- you send that back to Rolex, and they're going to make it look brand new. And then you set that next to a 2021, you know, new Batman or 2022. Now, like, what's the difference? There is no difference. So, what I think will happen is that watches pre 2000 watches are going to be, especially ones that were kept very nicely, maybe weren't worn. Wanna, like, you're going to see like uh, the same thing that you see in the art world. In terms of you know crazy auction prices, hundreds of millions of dollars from this, whatever, are those watches are going especially from small manufacturers, but even Rolex, because the, the market's so large, those watches are going to be bonkers. So like if you have a 1990 sub right now, say you bought one new, like I have I've talked to guys you know who have these 1990 subs. Oh yeah, I bought this when I you know on my first job, I paid 4,500 bucks for it. Um, you know, I, I wore the crap out of it. I want to trade it now. Those those watches are going to be worth insane amounts of money. Um, that that's my that's my view of things. Um, that but anything post two thousand for the most part is not going to be. It, 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 there's going to have to be either a different term or a different view of it in order to to differentiate like true vintage of watches made that are truly deteriorating just based on the their age and the watches that are that were made with like the modern technology that Rolex is using now or a lot of Yeah, you won't get that same fade. What you might get a difference of is, you know, some of the style. I mean, I think back to like, you know, I look at it again, I always (laughs) tend to equate things with cars. It's like, you know, like I look at a, you know, a 2005 Lambo, you know what I mean? It's got a certain look to it um, that'll probably never come back, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely of a time. Um, And I think you might see some of that in the watch world where, you know, there were certain styles and trends we went through that might be distinctive for its age, but it won't necessarily have to look its age. You're talking about like 48 millimeters yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that nobody wants to ever see again. Yeah, no, I, so I guess you're right about that in terms of style. But I mean, Rolex still makes, um, you know, the they still make deep seas in 44 millimeter, which I guess is kind of from that era, like the big watch era that lasted from the 2000 to 2010, roughly. Right. Um, but I guess that, that, you know what, I didn't take that into account. So maybe that's a way to differentiate, but there has to be. And that's, I think that's going to be the main thing is like, all right, we have to def- differentiate. Um, and you know, that's going to be the value yeah, there. I think that's what, so exactly it, what we'll see happen. So, um, but to your point, yeah, you're not going to have the traditional, um, you know, vintage look that does it. It's going to be definitely, uh, you know, maybe a style wise, but it won't be the same kind of thing that we have, which maybe will make the real vintage stuff come back up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, well, there's, you know, because they, they truly do um, deteriorate over time. So, you know, what is a 1518 going to be worth in 2050? Right. Because this, you know, we know exactly how many there are and it's not that many. So you would think if the collectors see that $10 million one now, now there's a benchmark and maybe the one that's not quite as good is now a 4 or $5 million watch where it used to be, you know, a half million dollar piece. You know, it's a reset of that market, I think, is what you're going to see. And I think we have seen that. 20, 2050 is only 28. Oh, don't even say that to that's... me. Now you're terrifying me. I mean, like I have, I have, a, I have a daughter who's 21 months, so she'll be – Younger than I am now in 2015. <laughs> this is that is terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so I, you know, the the future of vintage is is uncertain. Um, you know, I think that there are some indicators that we can we can kind of make some some guesses on. But you know, listen, maybe somebody presses the button and their human beings are don't exist in 2050. <laughs> also, right? Like, that, and that might solve the problem for us. But um. Uh, or for those who are upset about things these days, but uh, but yeah, I mean, let me think here. Did we cover? Oh, uh, the last thing I wanted to cover with you is uh, real quick. There was there's some 
murmuring online about uh, Rolex being reactionary in terms of their price increases. And there's a whole thread on the Rolex forum as well as the Reddit Rolex forum. And, you know, people are, are thinking that Rolex is reacting to the uh, trying to trying to slow down the, the resale market by, you know, increasing uh, retails on some steel watches by 10 and 15 percent. Um, I mean, well, you and I kind of chatted about it before, but why don't you go ahead yeah, and address I mean, that? Uh, kind of- I mean, I wish they would address the resale market, but if they wanted to do that, they'd have to raise prices 25, 30, 40%, and they could and have no issues. Um, but traditionally, Rolex has always done this. And, you know, over the last seven or eight years, uh, we've seen very minimal and very infrequent price increases from Rolex. I mean, a, a steel sub has, you know, been ninety-one fifty for a while, and um, you know, it was kind of the, basically the same price for the last five, six, seven years. Whereas back in the, you know, I remember in the early eighties, um, the GMT when they they first raised it went from eighteen fifty to twenty-three fifty, and we were convinced we were never going to sell another GMT because it had gone up, you know, twenty-five percent overnight. And it did nothing but drive Wait, you said $1,850 to $2,350. Yeah, it was, it was expensive. But, I mean, a gold day date at the time was $69.95. And that went up to, like, $7,200. You know what I mean? So, um, percentage-wise, they didn't move much. But they kept bringing up the bottom and bringing up the steel. So, you know, larger increases on the lower price points was traditional. And still is. And, you know, the, the price increase is kind of basically the same. You know, if you raise a, a steel watch, 800 bucks, a thousand bucks, it's 10, 12 percent. You raise a, a $50,000 watch, a thousand bucks, it's two percent. Um, it's the same thousand bucks. So they really have always done this. Rolex is not reacting in any way. If they did, a Daytona would be thirty five thousand dollars. Right. That's the only way that this changes. And that, that would be and my. We're not going to talk about that. It I wish that they would. Honestly, I was hoping they would increase 20 or 25% on their steel sports stuff just because it would take a lot of the flippers out of the game. You know, if a watch is 91.50 retail and it's worth, you know, 10.5, it's not as worth as much trouble if it's, if it's worth 15. So if they just made a sub but worth think- 12 grand instead of nine grand, good. Yeah, but the Daytona is trading well, forty thousand bucks. That's so like, why they even if they even if they incre- they double the price to twenty five thousand dollars, like who's not buying the watch? It's, it doesn't, doesn't change, change anything. anything, and that's where their challenge is. And it's a difficult position for them to be in, especially now with you know you've got more and more gold pieces that are trading at levels that I can't imagine. Well, that's honestly, I I actually appreciate that because. You know, that was one thing that was just bonkers and everybody was talking about. It's like, how could a steel Daytona be worth more than a gold Daytona? It's just it's bullshit. So now it's not. <laughs> everybody got what they, they wanted. They, were, they wanted. Now uh, a gold Daytona is worth a, a, an absurd amount of money. Um, I mean, I had one in 2019, a rose gold that I bought for 20 and then I think I traded it for like 22 and I was so happy. I made my $2,000, True. Um, you know, having it for six months. And now it's a forty-five thousand dollars watch. So you know, there's now I'm kicking myself because I love the watch, and now I'm not buying that watch. I mean, that's you know, it, like, and it's funny because at that same time I was looking at at a Zeitwerk, which or not a Zeitwerk, a um, a Datagraph Platinum, which would have been about forty-five thousand dollars, and now it's like seventy thousand dollars. It's like, oh man, I, I missed on these things. But uh, but yeah, so the the price increase from Rolex is. Is just par for the court. Yeah, no, again, I mean, it hasn't officially happened in the U.S. yet. It'll probably, February 1st is the traditional date for Rolex to raise in the States. They always, for whatever reason, raise Asia first, which is where we're getting the buzz from. Um, But they will have an increase Mm -hmm. in the States, and I hope it's significant. But I don't think it'll be significant enough to affect the market in any way. You think they're discontinuing any models? Uh, No, they won't discontinue until Watches and Wonders, which is... You know, still probably 50-50 whether it's going to happen, but that's March 30th. So end of March, we will definitely discontinue. I have plenty of bets already on the table. Um, yeah, me too. We'll, we'll save we'll that keep for those another to our best because we want. That's right. or or never because we want to buy them all. To, we're trying to. Get, yeah, if you didn't know, if you're listening to this podcast, if you didn't know, we try. We like to make money. <laughs> this is what our business is. Uh, 
sorry to burst your bubble, but um, all right. Well, we've uh, we're literally we're forty five seconds away from an hour perfect. here, so I think this is a perfect time to cancel or end the uh, the podcast. So, well, I appreciate you taking your time you with know, me. It's always my pleasure. Um, Whenever uh, you ask, I'm there. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate. It. We have a few other topics we'll we'll discuss over the next few weeks. Um, but if you're still listening to this, as always, we love you. You're a champion. Um, please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, or any anywhere else, please subscribe. It's very helpful. Where I, I got a call from our marketing team today. I guess we have a new marketing creative director, or whatnot. So they want to actually put some um, some uh, some muscle into marketing the podcast. It's not just me. You know, doing everything, awesome. which I, I certainly appreciate. Yeah, that'd be nice. Maybe we'll get some more uh, guests with some cloud. I have I've some pretty cool guests upcoming. Um, so just keep an eye out for that. We're uh, we're getting back on our weekly uh, schedule. The the end of the year last year just got way too hectic. I just could not keep up with doing a, a podcast every week with as much business as we were doing. So, um, but I'm back on it. And uh, otherwise, check out the uh, the market wrap, which uh, has has may or may not have stolen some Definitely segments from stole. trading. My desk. best ideas are stolen. Up. You know that. Yeah, listen, I appreciate it. Listen, I'm glad that somebody's doing it. You know, where the trading desk was was a uh, a much less evolved and much less uh, poignant uh, version of the market wrap. It's it's an evolution. So I always appreciate that. You know, I, I watch it every week. My my daughter and I sit and watch it every Saturday morning. So guys, if if you haven't heard of the market wrap, that's Manjos's weekly show where literally he wraps the market. Um, of watches. So go ahead and check that out. It's only about what it's, it's about 15 yeah. minutes long. So it's not an hour podcast. So you have to dedicate yourself to, um, otherwise you can find Mike. Uh, what's your, what's your Instagram? Uh, handle? There you go. So you're Mike Manjos. I'm at Mr. Thanos. So if you guys have any questions, concerns, you want to bitch and moan, please reach out to us. We're happy to hear it. Uh, reach out to us on Instagram or, you know, you can just send a, a message through the website and somebody will send it to us, uh, watchbox.com. So as always, thank you so much for listening and uh, see you next Thanks, week. Thanks,